we come before you um, in this new season of feasting um, after the resurrection, Lord. I just pray um, that you would um, continue to impress the Easter reality that we are an Easter people um, into the hearts of each of us, even as we delve into this text um, that you prophesied so long ago today, um, that you would just reveal your kingdom to us, um, even through the very words that I am about to speak. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. There are handouts up front. Um, I think I know pretty much everyone, but if you don't know me, hi, I'm Christina Maxwell. Um, I feel like we really should just start with like, the world, the world is broken. You know, um, this week alone, I've experienced so many reminders of the world's present brokenness. Um, I watched my sister have to hand her brand new little baby over to the NICU and go home without him. He's home now and okay, but it's just the brokenness, right? Um, he couldn't, res- he wasn't getting the nutrients he needed from her, so she had to give him over to people who could care. Um, and I grieved the loss of a job with a friend. Um, and I've walked with a family member through addiction, recovery, and divorce. This world is broken. But I know that I don't need to even tell you all that because you know it's broken too, right? You have your own lists, um, your own hurts, your own pains, your own dead dreams. God's people in the day of Isaiah certainly were aware of this reality as well. Um, After years of having their land attacked and stolen by foreign enemies and being dragged off into captivity and exile, um, all because of their iniquity and their sinful ways and their inability to reflect God's character to the watching world, yes, they were well acquainted with the brokenness of the world and the fallenness of the human condition. I think the worst part of it all is so frequently we are faced with the reality that we can't fix the situation. You know, we don't have the tools or the means to save people or restore dreams or reconcile families. It's a helpless feeling and one that I feel certain the Israelites could relate to. Okay, so last week, like I said, my sister had a baby. um, And I had the privilege of being there for labor and delivery, which was really sweet and wonderful and also kind of terrifying. Mostly because of how we Provo girls, that's my maiden name, tend to have babies, which is very, very quickly. Um, it's not just like that it happens really quickly, it does, but it's that we, we're both like this, evidently, go from like kind of thinking maybe we're in labor to like, no, I'm about to have a baby now in like an hour. So um, that happened to me with both Jack and Eloise, and it happened to my sister, too. So she decided that we needed to go to the hospital at 5.25 p.m. on a Monday afternoon in Dallas. Yeah. Um, so we all got in the car, and we fought the traffic for 25 minutes to the hospital. And the whole time, right, like me and my mom are climbing in the back seat and we're pushing on her hips and trying to help her ignore her feeling to push and put counter pressure on the pain, right, with each contraction. And and it kind of dawned on me on our way there, like, oh, no, I don't think we called the doctor. Like, I don't know that she ever called her doctor and told the doctor that she's about to have her baby. So I pick up my cell phone, right, and I start calling. And if you've ever gone into labor, well, okay, right, so it occurs to me it's 5.30. That means she would have gone home like 30 minutes ago, right, because the day is over. So if you've ever gone into labor after, after office hours, you call, and you have to leave a message with the nurse, and the nurse calls you back to kind of like confirm that you're in labor and then the nurse calls the doctor and then the doctor calls you back and it's this whole ordeal a very timely ordeal 
that we really did not have time for that afternoon. <laughs> um, so I finally hear from Dr. Littrell right when we're walking into the hospital, and I put my super serious voice on, and I try my best to convince her, because this is her first baby, that, that I'm very sure she's about to have her baby, and we need a doctor now. Um, so we walk into the hospital, and they admit Emily, and they check us in. And this first-year resident, um, you know, a doctor in training comes in and checks her and confirms our suspicions that, yes, she can see the baby's head and she's about to have a baby. Um, And poor Emily is in so much pain and she's anxious and I'm anxious and I'm looking at this first-year resident and, like, I know this is how all doctors start, but I really don't want this first-year resident to have to deliver her baby. And, like, it was just tense, right? I mean, I just knew that this resident couldn't do the job that, her doctor could do, the one who'd walked with her through the whole 10 months, who knew her, who cared for her and her baby. Um, And Emily wanted relief. She wanted to deliver this baby, right? But she wasn't sure if this resident was the right person to do the job. And then, in one of the most relieving moments of my life, Dr. Gumby walked in. And the whole room let out an exhale. I'm not kidding. And he's not even her doctor. (laughs) But Dr. Gumby is a legend at Baylor Hospital. All of the staff know and love him. He has delivered over 8,000 babies, and he delivers each one with precision, care, and devotion. And he means a lot to our family because he delivered my daughter. We were all relieved because the perfect man for the job arrived on the scene. So when Jesus enters the scene into this grand story of Scripture, according to the Gospel of Luke, he uses the words of our passage today to break God's 400-year silence to his people in his very first sermon. And he begins his ministry by telling his people they can exhale and feel relief because the perfect man for the job has arrived on the scene. He sees all the heartache and the hardship, the oppression and the sin, and he knows how to handle it. The work is not completed yet. The baby isn't born. All that he's come to do has not been done, but he is here, and that is what matters. For by his presence, his kingdom has come. So we're going to use this lens. I'm kind of going to do something different. It's like, we've been in Isaiah for so long, right? I don't know. I'm feeling a little fatigued. So fresh take. We're going to look at um, our text today through the lens of God's kingdom to study this passage. Um, And we're really only going to look at it in light of the New Testament. So, you know, we spent the last hour looking at it, how the Israelites would have seen it. So I'm just going to look at the New Testament. Um, So we're going to ask ourselves, what does God's kingdom have to do with me now? In what ways is it already here? In what ways is it not already here? And what should we do with that? So first, on your sheet, you'll see we're going to look at the coming of the kingdom, the already realized aspects of the kingdom, what it means to be people of the kingdom, what what work exists for God's people, and finally, the unrealized or not yet aspects of the kingdom. Okay, so the coming of the kingdom. Hold on. Sorry, dry mouth. What does it mean that this kingdom has come? First, let's look at the coming of the kingdom. What do I mean when I say the kingdom has come? Today's passage is an extremely important one. How do I know this? Because like I just said, when Jesus arrives on the scene and begins his public ministry, he starts with a sermon. And that in that sermon, he quotes this very text. But he doesn't just quote the text. No. He interprets it for us. And in that sense, he made my job very easy today. You see, Jesus stands up in the temple, according to Luke chapter 4, and he opens a scroll, and he finds Isaiah 61, and he begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls the scroll back up, and he says, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
So just in case we had any questions about who this anointed one with God's spirit is, Jesus makes it abundantly clear for us. It's him. He's the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, the son of man. But more than just identifying himself, Jesus is also announcing to the synagogue, the kingdom of God is at hand. Because what Isaiah saw as one messianic mission, Jesus turns into two by stopping halfway through verse two of our text. And begins to show us how he is inaugurating the kingdom of God, the year of the Lord's favor, at his first coming, and will consummate it with his second. This is what we will call today the already but not yetness of the kingdom of God. The already we will refer to as the year of the Lord's favor, and the not yet as the day of vengeance of God. A simple definition for the coming of the kingdom of God. I I wrote it there on your sheet. The The coming of the kingdom of God is the restoration of mankind to their proper place as God's co-ruler. So Jesus is the ultimate representative of humanity. And through his life, ministry, death, and resurrection, he is restoring humanity to its proper place. So in Luke, when Jesus reads this text, it's shocking because he is both God and man. In the fullness of his humanity, he says, this is about me. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ. In effect, he is saying, I am the new Adam. I will do what he couldn't do. And through my righteousness and perfect obedience, because of our shared humanity, I will restore humanity to their rightful place as co-rulers with God. I will drive out Satan and darkness and hate and sin in all of its facets. The kingdom of God, or the rule of God, refers to the hope that God is bringing his story to completion. And it begins with Jesus' proclamation here. So this threefold purpose of the anointed one we see in verses 1 and 2 that he reads, it reveals to us some of the work of Christ in in the coming of the kingdom, right? To bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This mission reveals to us several aspects of sin and brokenness that must be redeemed. You see, we kind of, I think, think of sin as like just simply breaking God's law. And it is that, but it's so much bigger than that. Um... Isaiah shows us, and then Jesus shows us, um, by saying that he's in, that the anointed one is here to fix economic brokenness, emotional brokenness, oppression or intellectual brokenness, spiritual blindness. He shows us that there is a personal and individual element to sin, but there's also this corporate and social aspect to sin and brokenness. And in Jesus, we see he's come to fix both. Each of these aspects of sin remove parts of humanity from mankind. They make us less human less and less like the co-rulers we were created to be. Poverty, broken hearts, mental illness, spiritual blindness, racism, oppression, and injustice, they all make us less human. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he ushers in the kingdom by undoing these things. He casts out demons, freeing people psychologically and spiritually. He restores hearing and speaking to the blind and the mute. He forgives sin, enabling God's people to be holy. He heals sickness and disease by faith to restore people to life and to their communities. I have in mind here lepers or the women with the flow of blood who would have been ostracized because of their illness. He calls Gentiles to faith and brings them into his kingdom. Okay, this is like a nerdy moment, but I remember learning about this in my seminary class um, on Synoptic Gospels, and it like seriously changed my world. Like, what I'm saying is, Jesus did not just come. Like, his life is not just an example. His life, like, his his 
um, miracles were not just to like prove his divinity, although they do that, right? And, and of course he is an example, like we should be like Christ. But it's not merely that, but actually through his work, he was ushering in the kingdom and restoring humanity. Like he wasn't just biding time until he could do his real work on the cross. Although, of course, we needed the cross. Like everything he did was restoring dignity to his people. But he doesn't just stop here in his proclamation, right? He keeps reading one more half verse to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when he finishes here, the Jewish people sitting in the synagogue would have known this phrase and its origins in Leviticus 25, where God outlines for his people the concept of a jubilee year. Um, So the jubilee year, it has to do with the Sabbath, right? So in Leviticus, when he gives the law, the Sabbath is the seventh day where you're called to rest. And then there was a Sabbath Sabbath year. Um, So the seventh year, they were called to rest. And what that meant was they had to, like, leave their fields untouched and untilled. And the idea was to, like, rely upon the Lord and trust him to provide, but also to, like, actually give the ground rest for a year. And then he built upon that this idea of the Sabbath Sabbath, okay? So every seven times seven years was this year called Jubilee. So the 50th year would be the Jubilee year. Um, And they were also to rest. So they had to rest the 49th year and the 50th year. And they couldn't work on the land and they had to rest. But then in addition to that, there was this whole social and economic mercy that happened or it was supposed to happen. We actually don't have any record that the Israelites ever did this. Um, surprise. Um, and so basically anyone, any of the Israelites who had gotten into economic trouble and had ended up in indentured servitude were freed during this year. Any Israelites who had made bad decisions and had lost their land over some time in that 50 years, the land was rightfully restored to them. So it was this, this season of mercy. And so through this proclamation in the synagogue, according to Luke, Jesus is announcing to the world that he is ushering a year in a year or a period of jubilee, a year of the Lord's favor. By quoting Isaiah in this way, Jesus is saying, the kingdom has come in me. And it looks like a year of jubilee, a season of grace, where humanity will be restored, where mercy will be extended to people who have made bad decisions along the way, who sold themselves into servanthood to other masters. They will be freed in this age of the Lord's favor. The kingdom has come in this very real sense. Okay, so let's, let's focus more in on that, this, this alreadiness of the kingdom. What parts of it are already here? Oh, my mouth is so dry. Okay, let's take a closer look. So in verses 5 through 7 of our text in Isaiah, we get an even fuller picture of this kingdom. It looks like personal transformation. It looks like spiritual transformation, social wholeness, psychological wholeness, racial harmony, economic wholeness. But we see strangers and foreigners working side by side with God's people. The English translation makes that a little hard to understand. But the Hebrew text shows that like that word stranger in verse 5, strangers are standing with you, stand with you. It's like stand with you and shepherd your flocks. I feel like in English it kind of makes it sound to us like they're your slaves or your servants doing your work. But the the thrust is really like they're working alongside each other um, together. Right? So it's like God's people of all these ethnicities are working side by side. Verse 6 tells us that God's people will be called priests of the Lord again and be spoken of as ministers of our God. So there's spiritual transformation. Once again, God's people will finally be able to be holy as God is holy. Because of the Jubilee references and his specific call to the poor, we know that there will be economic wholeness. 
God's people will once again provide for the needs of the weak and vulnerable among them. The year of the Lord's favor is the extended period we live in now. It's the time during which God's people can enjoy the achievements of the servant. We live in this moment of grace. We live in a moment of salvation. Um, like, right, there's both common grace. Things aren't as bad as they could be. Satan has been bound and cast out. Um, even though he's still working, he's been tied up, we see in Revelation. Um, but also we live in the age of salvation, right, of special grace. There, there are people every single day coming to saving faith. There are babies being baptized, um, people coming to the table. Um, so God's people who were endowed to the Lord during Isaiah's day actually become transformed during Jesus' day. The kingdom of God, as it's realized in Jesus' first advent, is restoring of humankind to their original place as co-ruler so that when they set out to change the world, their efforts are no longer in vain. Redemption is possible because of this anointed one. Restoration is possible because of this anointed one. Healing and wholeness are possible because of this anointed one. Once Jesus arrives on the scene, people are enabled to become more human. They're able to die to sin and live to righteousness. This is the kingdom of God. So in this very real sense, the kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. And this kingdom is filled with kingdom people. So let's look at what it means to be kingdom people. We see in verse 3 that in the kingdom, Christ makes his people like oaks of righteousness. And I love this phrasing because it's like so organic, right? It's not just like this robe that he covers them in, but he actually like regrows them up in this righteousness. Um, he's making us truly righteous. How does he do this? So the key is in verse 3, and there's one word repeated three times. And in English, we translate it as instead, but I think it might be more helpful for us to think of in place of. It's like this imputation language, okay? So we see that Jesus will give those who mourn in Zion a beautiful headdress in the place of ashes. He will give the oil of gladness in the place of mourning. He will give the garment of praise in the place of a faint spirit. So he isn't just like putting a headdress on top of their ashes. <laughs> He's removing their ashes and putting on the headdress in the place of. But how does he do that? Well, he becomes a suffering servant. The one described for us repeatedly through Isaiah the one written about in chapter 53. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He takes our ashes and gives us his beauty. He takes our mourning and gives us his gladness. He takes our faint spirit and he gives us his praise. By becoming what we were, he enabled us to become what we were not. Christ becomes the likeness of men so that men can become the likeness of Christ. And in this way, he restores his people to be co-rulers with him. God will make of his people what they cannot make of themselves. And in making him what they cannot make of themselves, he adorns them like a bride on their wedding day. And he gives them a new name according to chapter 22, verse 4. They will no longer be called forsaken. They will be called my delight is in her. Because on top of all of this, the Lord also finds delight in his people. Friends, God delights in you. On top of ransoming, saving, redeeming, and restoring us to our rightful place as co-rulers and the light of, to the nations, God also delights in us. So kingdom people are marked by righteousness, by a restored ruling over the created order. They're marked by beauty where there once was death, gladness where there once was mourning, and praise where there once was a faint spirit. Because of Jesus, People of the kingdom are transformed 
and enabled by faith to bear his resemblance and do his work. So what is that work? These kingdom people do kingdom work. So now we can look, let's move on to looking at what we can learn from our text today about the work God has for us. Okay, let's look in verse 4. It says, They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of generations. This would have been particularly comforting to Israel in Isaiah's day, right? They're like headed back out of captivity into their desolate land, and God tells them to rebuild Israel. Um, They're going to have a home again. But because of Jesus, we also know it's pertinent to us as well. You see, in the coming of the kingdom, God doesn't simply remove his people from all of the sin and brokenness of the world, right? That's where we started. He remakes us and restores us so that we can rebuild the world together. In other words, we aren't just saved from something. We're actually saved to something. We are saved to the bride of Christ, as it's so eloquently displayed in chapter 62. And as the bride of Christ, we are saved to kingdom work. So what does that mean, to do the work of the kingdom? Make something beautiful out of desolation. Take something ruined by sin and corruption and renew it. Redeem broken situations. Build societies. Form communities. Serve the world. And do all of this in the name of justice. For as we see in verse 8, it is justice that this kingdom, it is injustice that this kingdom is established. As we go about the work of the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated, the kingdom comes to bear more and more in this world, right? Humanity is restored and is being restored more and more to their original calling. And in this way, Christians are inherently progressive people. The kingdom has come, and the kingdom is coming, and the kingdom will come. (laughs) Additionally, I think we can say with assurance that we're called to the very same work Christ came to do. Now that he's restored our ability to co-rule with him, we bring good news to the poor. We bind up the brokenhearted. We proclaim liberty to the captives and to guide the spiritually blind. And in this way, we are reminded of Christ's own Sermon on the Mount and his exposition of the law, right? These are kingdom ethics. This is the work of the people of God. This is the work of the church. If God loves these things, we will love these things. Our commitment to this work in justice will reveal our commitment to God. But here's the key. Is that the work of the kingdom can only come about with proper vision of the kingdom. This is the point where we ask ourselves, what does our eschatology, which is the big fancy word for our view of the end times, our view of God's kingdom, have to do with today? And the answer is everything. How we think the story began and where we think the story is going will affect every aspect of our life today. It will shape the way we pray, the way we connect or disconnect to our church, the way we seek justice in our community, the decisions we make for our families along the way, the way we view non-Christians. So here's a challenge for us to consider. What is our vision of the good life? Where do you think the story is ending? Does it look like the year of Jubilee? Does it look like mercy? Spiritual transformation for sinners? Economic restoration for the poor? Social transform- restoration for the estranged? Emotional and psychological restoration for the hurting? And physical restoration for the weak? Or is it some other version? You know, like some version where God hates all of the same people you do and will cast down all of your enemies. <laughs> Or some version where sin isn't really that big of a deal and everyone will kind of just end up in glory together. Is it a version where God shows preference because of uh, my intellect or my nationality or my race or my gender or my good works? 
The reality is we are what we love, and if we don't love the things that God loves, we won't become like him. We must accurately grasp the kingdom of God as he reveals it to us and work toward those ends. But this work can be so frustrating because the kingdom has come in Jesus, but the kingdom is still coming. For though we are enabled to be holy as God is holy, we still sin. For though Satan has been bound, God still allows him to move and work. For though our rightful place as co-rulers of the Christ has been reclaimed on our behalf, we trade that truth of God for a lie, according to St. Paul, and we treat people as if they are our own means to our own ends. Even though we've been restored to our rightful place, we still act as if we're enslaved to sin. And in this vein, the tension and the frustration of the already but not yetness of this kingdom, we turn to chapter 62, and we see God give his people another task of kingdom work in verses 6 through 7. He says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem, and make it a praise in the earth. What else are God's people to do? They are to pray to remind God to finish the good work he started, knowing that he will. Jesus picks up this notion when he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are called to be a people of prayer who daily petition to our Lord to never be silent. We are called to long for the consummation of his kingdom. Okay, This leads us to our final point. The not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. So I'm reminded of how frustrating the season of the Lord's favor can be. And it leads me to question why Christ returned, like why Christ turned what Isaiah saw as one mission to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God into two. Why did Christ do it this way? Why must we live in this kingdom that is already here and in so many ways is still coming? Why not just inaugurate and consummate it all at once? And this is where we turn to chapter 63. And we see two questions asked. Okay, he says, Who is this who comes marching in his own strength, and why are your clothes stained in blood? (laughs) This is a picture of the day of vengeance, when Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. And what is beautiful is that we learn that although we only saw one aspect of his messianic mission, he actually accomplished both during his first advent, at least partially. The person who answers reveals his identity in verse 1. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. It is Jesus. Remember, it's that phrase that's been used in Isaiah. I am, I am, I am he, I am here. And why are his clothes stained? Well, he tells us in verses 3 through 6, because he has trodden the winepress alone. There was no one to help, no one to uphold. My own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. You see, Jesus stops reading where he does that day in the synagogue and makes no mention of bringing vengeance Because in his first advent, he isn't bringing vengeance. He's bearing it. The perfect man for the job was here. The only man for the job came down as their representative, bearing vengeance and the wrath of God on behalf of his people. And one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. And and with that day, the kingdom will be consummated. There will be no more frustration in our work. No more sin mixed up in our righteousness. No more tears or pain and sadness. The work of rebuilding this world will be complete. And we can rest easy, friends, because the vengeance of God and his perfect justice 
has already been born on our behalf on the cross. Okay, so today is April 4th, 2018, by God's providence. And that means it's been 50 years since April 4th, 1968. And on April 4th in 1968, this world lost a light when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and murdered in our streets for doing the work of the kingdom of God. Um, I've been reflecting a lot on Dr. King's life and work, anticipating this anniversary of his death. And I was really struck reading the last few sentences he spoke publicly on the night before his death in his speech, and it was called, I've Seen the Mountaintop. So I'm going to read you just the last few sentences. My voice is nothing like his. I wish it was. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I am not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This was a man who was acquainted with the kingdom of God. He saw the kingdom of God for what it really was. He knew that God's plan for he knew what God's plan for restoration and redemption looked like and it did not match the world around him. A world where people were segregated and beaten and mistreated because of the color of their skin, a world where systemic poverty made it nearly impossible for people of color to live a decent life. A world where the white church at worst endorsed this injustice and at best sat idly by and let it happen. I think it's easy for us to rewrite history when we think about Dr. King and his legacy, right? And we can look back now and see all the wonderful work he did. But the reality is at the time when King was active in leading the civil rights movement, many white Christians despised him. They couldn't see the good he was doing. They called him a Marxist. They said he was too political, that this wasn't the work of our Lord. And he certainly wasn't perfect. I'm not saying that. But upon his death, many even rejoiced. See, their vision of the good life was incomplete. It didn't include justice for the oppressed and racial unity among God's people. I say this to challenge us today, to cause us to pause and to think of the people and the work that we are willing to write off because it doesn't fit into our vision of the good life, our vision of the kingdom. But I also say this to encourage us. This was a man who had very little support from white allies in the church. He knew that people opposed him. I mean, it sounds from that, this, that what I just read that he knew his death was probably imminent. But he loved what God loved more than his own life. And he worked. And he prayed. And he preached. Because he had been to the mountaintop. He had seen the promised land. And he knew that what was coming in the kingdom. Amen.